wonder, you wonder what to say and what to do because you've never seen it before. When I speak about football, talking about my career, I cannot uh, speak about my career once without speaking about this uh, this moment. What made it extraordinary was this suggestion that a manager had deliberately uh, got a game abandoned. And then I turn around and just headbutt it. Uh, I'm not even sure I touched the ball that day. I had a telephone number for the referee, Eddie Wollstonehome. Going back, being in the same situation uh, on the pitch, I'm not sure if I would have reacted to any different. You know, football has this habit of throwing up these dramas and which you think couldn't happen. Um, and, and so dramatic was this that I, I noticed that the Battle of Bramall Lane, as it then became known, now is its own Wikipedia page, yeah. would you believe? It does. And its own you know, special chapter. podcast as well. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast. We're an EFL podcast and this is something new from us, something that we're trying out for the first time, something that we hope and we think you will really, really enjoy. We're sponsored by Black Type Bet and on Friday night, Sheffield United host West Bromwich Albion in the Championship, the first game between the two sides for almost nine years. And we thought, looking at the fixture list, a great time to wander down memory lane, specifically to the Battle of Bramall Lane, a day on which, for the first time ever, an English professional football match was abandoned due to a lack of players, something that hadn't happened before and in 16 years has not happened since. This episode's subheader is The Perfect Storm. And hopefully, over the course of the next 45 minutes, the next hour, you'll understand exactly what happened why it happened and the reaction to it and much much more we've spoken to a couple of people involved with the event and uh, yeah the battle of bramall lane is the subject of this podcast it was on the 16th of march 2002 if you don't remember this game go and watch the video on youtube now battle of bramall lane there's plenty to see if you do remember this game go and watch the video on youtube because i guarantee you with a bit of water under the bridge and a bit of time passed there will be new things that you notice, new things that amuse you, maybe new things that, uh, that anger you. But I-, I wanted to start, George, by asking you, before we started researching this, before we decided to do this podcast as a special, before we thought about who to, to talk to, who to get involved, if I'd said to you, the Battle of Bramall Lane, what would be your reaction? What are your memories? What did you think of it? I mean, memories-wise, it's it not a great amount. We, we were young. <laughs> we, were, we, we were young. Um, you know, this is when you and I kind of first became mates, which is mm. quite interesting. Mm. And a lot of that time was spent... <laughs> I like you say it's interesting, as if there might be some sort of link between the violence. Because well, no, I was going to say, a, a, a massive part of, of, of our friendship uh, early on was uh, a certain game called Championship Manager 2001-2002. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of remember this match almost being like Championship Manager coming true. Just something so ridiculous that could only happen in a football game where, you know, we, I think we 
you know, Saturdays were different back then where you couldn't follow games uh, that you, you, know, you weren't vested in um, throughout the game. So it's one of those where you're checking BBC Sport around half past five in the afternoon, Tell six o'clock. Teletext as well. Channel page and, 302, uh, was And it? you're checking out what's happened. Yeah. Um, probably following the video printer as well. And Definitely. just, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting listening to, uh, to the guys who Jeff? Who... Do you think it was Jeff in 2002? Very possibly. I think it probably it would was. Be good, it would be good to get that footage as well. Incredible but, um, longevity. But just, you know, almost mythical. And then to the extent that where I reckon a couple of years later, if you'd told me this had happened, I probably wouldn't have believed you, even though I kind of had a vague mem- memory of it happening. Um, but, uh, but certainly, you know... In the this century, um, one of the EFL's most iconic games, and two guys, Neil Warnock and Gary Megson, who were who were so ingrained in, in football at that level with us growing up as well, and certain, um, you know, there were, there were good teams. These teams, Sheffield United, obviously, um, FA FA Cup semi finalists, um, just a couple of years later or, mm. or a year later. Yeah, yeah. Um, West Bromwich Admin as well, obviously a yo-yo team who won a few promotions from uh, the old First Division mm. back then as well. So you know, iconic. Teams, iconic uh, colours, which we'll get onto as well. Yeah, um, very vivid in terms of memory, but um, and also two you know, massive, massive teams in the EFL or the football league as it was back then, and two teams who, even as we discuss it now, ahead of their big clash coming up, are both vying for promotion again. Um, yeah. So, so very apt that we're talking about it here. It's absolutely perfect. Oh, oh, we're going to sort of go through the the timeline of the game and the timeline of events uh, to a certain extent. And quite quickly, you're going to hear a couple of other voices, people that we spoke to, experts on the topic. One of them, Alan Biggs, is, George, the Sheffield... I was going to say Sheffield journalist, but he's just the Sheffield football guru, isn't he? Sheffield football man. Yeah, yeah, he's a great man as well. He's He's been working in the city for a long time. Um, and whilst, I mean, he'll, t- he'll tell you himself, but whilst he wasn't at the game, he had a massive role in, in reporting it, both to, to the Sheffield area and also nationally. So uh, he was a great person to speak to. Yeah, so many layers to this. Uh, and Alan Biggs very much involved in quite a large part, as you say. And the other person we've spoken to played for Sheffield United that day, Patrick Suffo, who you will hear both from and you'll hear quite a lot about in the match recap. Now, Patrick, we were able to talk to because he wanted to clear some things up. He feels like there's a lot of rumours and a lot of false information that has followed uh, this match throughout the last 15, 16 years. And it was fantastic to be able to talk to Patrick, not least because when you first watch that video, you've got your main parts in George Santos, in Alan Johnson and in Neil Warnock and Gary Megson. But you've got a lot of supporting roles as well. Best actor in a supporting role. Patrick Suffo and Derek McInnes are probably vying for that award. So we were able to talk to Patrick, and uh, you'll have heard a few snippets in the introduction, and it's very worth sticking around for. But I'm just going to set the scene for us uh, and for you listeners. It's March 2002. It's a game between uh, Sheffield United and West Brom, obviously at Bramall Lane. And we're in what was Nationwide League Division One, known to you and I in this modern era as the Championship. At West Brom at the time, bear in mind we're in March, we've probably got about eight games to go. West Brom are in third place in the league, 11 points behind rivals Wolves, who were in second at the time. So quite a long way behind, not that many games to go. 
Sheffield United, meanwhile, were in 15th position on 50 points, safe from relegation, but not threatening the playoff places. Um, it's a beautiful spring day. Sun is drifting down onto the Bramall Lane pitch. Uh, the game gets underway, and George, you mentioned them earlier. Um, obviously, Sheffield United still playing in red and white, and West Brom this season have recreated the very same green and yellow kit they were in that day. Um, but it, they're still iconic kits, aren't they? And there's something about this period of football, maybe it's because we were young, where when you watch back, the, the kits just seem better for some reason. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm not someone who now uh, gives two hoots about, about football kits uh, these days, but I think when you're younger and you're growing up in it, you have to. And it's more just, I think, you know, she- the red and white of Sheffield United is, is you know, one of the most iconic it feels like a club who really embodies its colours and, and you associate it the whole time and, and also with the West Brom kit because it was uh, a bit different and and such from that era as well. I think we can all picture it before they uh, they brought it back this season. The fact they brought it back itself just shows its legendary status. Yeah, so those two iconic kits and I love them both as well. Uh, what's great about this podcast, this special, uh, is that Black Type, our sponsors, uh, wanted to get involved, wanted to help with the podcast, wanted to give something back to those uh, who listened to it. So um, we're very, very grateful to them. They've managed to get a hold of the West Brom green and yellow kit, the Sheffield United red and white kit, these retro, can you say retro 15 years? I guess you probably can, or people do, so I'll get away with it. They have got... 16 years, nearly 17 years, isn't it? uh, Well, six, yes. Maths. Sure. Anyway... Black Type have got a kit each, one green and yellow West Brom kit, one red and white Sheffield United kit, and they will be giving those kits away to a lucky winner, to a lucky listener. So head over to our Twitter page right now, at NTT20pod, if you fancy winning one of those kits. Um, You'll see the details of how you can do so. It's going to be the standard case of retweet and follow uh, NTT20pod and Black Type bet Twitter accounts and you could find yourself winning um, one of those excellent excellent kits and we hope that there are West Brom and Sheffield United fans who will end up as winners Um, and uh, yeah so we'll start with the managers here because (laughs) Neil Warnock still going Premier League manager in 2018 age 70 Gary Megson not uh, a manager currently but someone we've seen a lot over the last few years and they are I think it's fair to say not friends at this stage. Well, yeah, I mean, I think if they weren't friends before this stage, uh, then that certainly changed um, after this event where um, Gary Megson's interview after the game is very interesting indeed. Um, he, but he, Megson's got links with Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, indeed. And uh, and obviously, with, with Warnock managing Sheffield United, um, there was tension anyway. And, uh, and I think that obviously played into this as well. It's worth pointing out before this game started... West Brom were chasing promotion, whereas Sheffield United's season was almost over, um, which is a bit of a surprise when you think about who the aggressor turned out to be. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So uh, a further context from an article on the Two Unfortunates, which is a, an excellent website, a lot of writing about the Football League. Uh, Albion boss Megson, an owl, a supporter of the Blades' city rivals Sheffield Wednesday as a boy and then a player for the club and later a manager too. Uh, this added needle to the head-to-head with Warnock himself, a boyhood United fan, with neither man known for taking a back step in any confrontation. And this is where Alan Biggs can help fuel the fire somewhat. This is not the sort of uh, distaste that, uh, that is very much made up by the media. Alan himself knows about this firsthand. Look, it's common knowledge that these two guys don't like each other. 
Um, I think that is rooted um, from before this incident. Um, they had actually uh, been rivals for, for, for the job that Neil Warnock got. I don't know if there's anything to do with that. But certainly since, I mean, I, I've spoken and interviewed both men since. And, you know, I've had them on my local TV show, for instance, individually, and joke with them, you know, what a coup it would be if I could get Megson alongside Warnock and vice versa. <laughs> and it's been made very clear to me from both parties that that will never, ever happen. Kerry Megson was unstinting in his praise and admiration for Warnock as a manager. Um, don't like him as a bloke, he said. Never will, but... You know, there is that respect there. It's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Megson applying for the job that Warnock ends up getting. But here we are with Megson's West Brom looking much better bets for promotion. And Warnock's side, as you mentioned, sort of easing their way. Most teams would be looking forward to the summer. But Warnock makes sure this Sheffield United side are not doing so. I just wanted to run you through the teams a bit uh, just quickly, George, because there are some great names, as you say. This is very much a time where we were... Um, properly learning to love the game, learning to love the EFL. The team news for this one, Sheffield United, a front three of Paul Pesky-Solido, Peter and Love, and Laurent de Jaffo, which is just wonderful. That is really they've, nice. They've got Rob Page and Keith Curl at centre-back. Um, they've got a, a midfield, the most Sheffield United midfield you could ever think of. If I said to you... Pick uh, the you know three iconic Sheffield United players from the two thousands: Phil Jagielka, Brown, Michael Brown, Tong. and Michael Tong. Got exactly. it. Exactly. That wasn't planned. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's it's like some sort of fiction, except it actually happened. So Jags is in midfield. He's not moved back yet. He's still got um, you know he's still got his legs, and he's he's very much part of this very combative uh, Sheffield United side. Very much in the image of their uh, manager. It's interesting that Page Curl. Um, Brown obviously has given management a go as well these guys playing under Warnock um, all of them moving into management with with mixed success the West Brom team uh, Scott Doby up front who I feel like was a a classic Viddy Printer scorer I also love the idea of Scott Doby leading the line for a team third in the the old first division well his foil Danny Dicchio kids and grown ups love it so the happy world of Dicchio is a chant that I don't think anyone (laughs) sang but I think they should have done. Uh, at the back, Darren Moore, current West Brom manager. More layers to this. And Phil, Gr- Phil Gilchrist. You yeah, love Phil Gilchrist. I do. Well, I mean, yeah, tried to get him uh, to give us his version of events today, but we never heard back. So We, we couldn't get a West Brom voice. Yeah. We tried Dickio, <laughs> who's currently a, a pundit in, uh, in Toronto, in Canada. We tried Gilchrist. Couldn't get to him. Couldn't get to him. Russell Holt is in goal. Classic West Brom goalkeeper. Rule Fox is on the bench. Now, Wiki suggests that West Brom were playing six defenders, two midfielders and two attackers. So I, I would suggest that that was very much not the case. In, but in that case, Tony Pulis gets way too much credit for doing <laughs> that to them uh, 10 years later. <laughs> this is what West Brom all, have been doing mixing. for years. Yeah. Anyway, let's, let's just start the timeline of events. George, nine minutes in, Simon Tracy is sent off. Now, he's not got a lot of help from Keith Curl, who misses a header and then turns with all the pace of an, of an oil tanker and, um, you know, another recognisable name that we've mentioned, Peter Unlove, he has to come off, doesn't he? Not ideal for an attacking player. Whipped off after nine games. Sheffield, uh, nine minutes, I should say. Sheffield United down to 10 men. Sub-goalie Wilco DeVote comes on. Now, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know much about him. I've never heard of him as far as I remember. But yes, poor Peter Unlove 
probably ultimately for the best. And the commentator says on the highlights, and the fixture which seems to have a sending off every time it's played has another. And that's how you know you're onto something here. So that's about nine minutes gone. How would you sum up the following, let's say, 50 minutes of action? It's as you'd expect, probably, um, for a team who are pushing for promotion, playing against a 10-man mid-table strugglers. They take the lead. Uh, Andy Johnson, we'll be talking about him in a bit more detail later on, <laughs> uh, sets up the aforementioned Scott Doby to go 1-0 up. And then um, the moment of quality in the game, mm. uh, the, the man who'll probably feel most aggrieved about what happened later on in the game, in Derek McInnes, uh, scores an absolute worldy, a peach of a goal that um, that was far better than, uh, than, than, than what ensued. So... <laughs> They, they I love that in. you're taking the moral view here. I'm just absolutely gleeful about everything that happens. Well, and you're trying to tell us that a goal is better than what ensued. Oh, I, think, I think that's fair enough. It was a bit of quality and what was an ugly, uh, an ugly event. But, um, but yeah, so uh, McInnes uh, goes 2-0 up and then he uh, proceeds to ride a horse in a celebration. Not, not an actual horse, because uh, <laughs> that would be unbelievable. <laughs> that would be... I mean, It was a different time. In fairness, if that had happened, we wouldn't be the first podcast talking about this game, I don't think. But... Uh, <laughs> A horse down the tunnel. Um, but yeah, so McInnes uh, rides a, a fake horse. Uh, it looks like West Brom are coasting to a, an horse. easy an easy victory against 10-man Sheffield United. And, uh, and then chaos ensues. I mean, where to go from here? Once we hit the 60-minute mark, it's 2-0. You'd expect this game really to wind down. But um, as we've mentioned a few times in the first 20 minutes, this is no normal game. This is the perfect storm of football league chaos so it's 2-0 uh, we've had an early red we've had two goals for West Brom and then I think it's fair to say it all kicks off on the 64 minutes Neil Warnock looks at his bench and he thinks I've got some ideas here I'm going to make a double substitution don't forget of course that Peter and Love has already come off for the sub goalie. So these are his last two substitutions. Last chance saloon for, for, yeah, for the guys. Yeah, look, it's there. 10 men. Yeah. You're 2-0 down. What are you thinking you're going to do? Okay, we're going to get these two on. The two players who came on were uh, a certain Patrick Sufo, who he had the pleasure to speak to, and, uh, and George Santos. And what transpires is that this um, was more than just a regular cameo for Santos coming off the bench when his team is 2-0 down in a dead rubber um, with 10 men. And uh, Patrick, his teammate at the time, uh, has told us uh, exactly why that was. What happened that day was uh, the follow-up of something that happened a season before. When uh, uh, the same Andy Johnson, on, in which uh, George made his tackle, was playing for Forest, I think. Uh, and George had a metal plate on his face from an elbow from that same player. And he never apologized for, I'm not, I'm not, at the time, he didn't apologize for that. And George didn't, have never, didn't forget about, about the incident. And he was playing the season after with a metal plate on his face. To recap, George Santos comes on as a sub. His team are 2-0 down with 10 men. He's got a metal plate in his face caused by a man on the opposition team and he has, as Patrick says, not forgotten about it. And, now, the, and the game's gone. So like, you, don't, you don't have to worry about it. It's okay. This is a pure personal beef. And some of the reporting, some of the quotes from the incident, the original incident, are quite sensational, which I hope you'll take us through now from the BBC uh, uh, match report. Sheffield United's George Santos is set to take legal action against Nottingham Forest's Andy Johnson over the challenge which left him with a double fracture of the eye socket. Oh. 
The midfielder underwent a five and a half hour operation at Sheffield's Thornbury Hospital to have a titanium plate inserted in his face. I mean, Andy Johnson, it's fair to say, had a different view of, of that event. And he protested his innocence by saying, if anything, their boy was late on me. <laughs> that is, that's too much. So, I mean, absolutely extraordinary scenes here where, where Santos is livid with Andy Johnson, a guy who, who he's faced uh, playing for Sheffield United beforehand. He's got a metal plate in his face. Johnson thinks he did nothing wrong. To add to that, Santos was signed by Gary Megson for West Brom before as well um, and left having been offered a long-term contract but rejecting it as well. So a bit of spice there as well. Um, it really was uh, all building up to something which then came out on the pitch. Yeah, I mean, can I just go back to... I mean, Johnson, he says, their boy I thought was late on me as well. He's been in hospital for five and a half hours. Neil Warnock says a quarter of an inch to one side, he would have lost his eye. And Andy Johnson just could not give less. He just couldn't care less. He could not care less. Now, George Santos, um, latterly, has spoken on another podcast, on the Kings of Anglia podcast, which is an Ipswich Town-based podcast. He played for Ipswich as well. And they got him first on this uh, topic. And he says... Mr. Andy Johnson, give me a elbow, and I almost lost my high. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'd have thought, given that that's only a year before, and that that was some spicy, some spicy events, some spicy quotes, you'd have thought that some of the, uh, the media might have lined this one up, might have previewed uh, the, return, the sort of meeting of these two. But Alan Biggs says, in the pretty much previews, it wasn't really focused on. No, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, as I recall, it wasn't one of those preview topics um, for the game. But I, I remember being aware of the original incident, and it was only when this happened and Santos got his apparent retribution that the whole thing crystallised in your head and you put the two things together. And, and you realised you, you, actually those two things were making four. And George, uh, hopefully everyone will have paused and watched the YouTube video by now. How, with words, can we sum up George Santos's tackle on Andy Johnson, which comes, I reckon, it's hard to know exactly, and sometimes it's better not to know exactly, 30 seconds, maybe 40 seconds after he's come on. It is one of the most aggressive and visceral tackles I think I've ever seen. Yeah, it's an absolute disgrace. Um, there's no intention whatsoever to play the ball. Um, I think we've all seen Roy Keane's tackle on Alfin Jahan many times. I don't understand how that's the one that we see and not this one instead. It is absolute filth. And, um, and it's, it's good to see... I mean, there's a lot of questions emerge out of this game. Um, but, the one question, <laughs> but the one question that nobody asks is, like, was it a red card? Was it deliberate? I, I think we can all agree here that... Um, yeah, the George Santos certainly had, takes the view of, of an eye for an eye, although maybe not quite literally in this case. But the, the, the incredibly lucky thing is that, that Andy Johnson's leg didn't get broken. And, I mean, if that had been my leg, it, there's not a question. It would, have been, it would have been so broken. He launches himself from metres away. Um, as you say, it's so premeditated. George Santos on the Kings of Anglia podcast calls it a strong and hard challenge. Um, I didn't complain about the sending off, sure. Some would say the challenge was a bit strong and hard and I could have broken his leg, but I could be blind as well. Now that's a really nice sort of, what do they call it? Uh, eye for eye, cheek to cheek. I think they're two very different things. <laughs> <laughs> I think an eye for an eye is what I just said, which is right, cheek, cheek to cheek is like more... I think that's something out of the Bible. I think, no, I think cheek to cheek is like, it's like a loving thing. I think... 
those two certainly would be having any cheek to cheek together before. A bit of Christa Berg for you there, I think. Right. Well, it's, it's proper <laughs> an eye for an eye type stuff. And, and George Santos, he doesn't apologise. He knows it's bad, but, you know, he reckons that the, the almost broken leg is, is fair trade for an almost broken eye, for, for almost going blind. So, of course, uh, we've got quite a large reaction to this tackle. Um, I think, and this is one of the, the great reasons why we, one of the main reasons why we wanted to get Patrick Suffo on, because he now inserts himself into the story in quite a major way. Uh, there is a fairly impressive melee at which Patrick is very much at the heart, and uh, he's going to tell us a little bit more about what's gone on in there. George made this tackle. That was a very, very bad tackle, because it was still... Uh... He had that uh, he had that incident for the season before in his mind, and uh, every player from West Brom just jumped on George. So I felt like I won't leave my teammate being smashed <laughs> while I'm standing there looking. So I jumped in the middle, preventing everybody to to jump uh, to go on George. And then uh, uh, while I was doing that, one of the players I remember he was the captain at the time, Darren McInnes. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, came from behind and grabbed me uh, in my face. While grabbing me, I felt his hand in my mouth, in my nose, in my eye, and, and then uh, I just reacted the way I reacted that day. But I didn't go in there to kill anyone, to hurt anyone. <laughs> but I went in there to protect George. So you're, you're trying to protect your teammate, and then someone you can't even see essentially grabs your face. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, from behind, and then I turn around and just headbutt I mean, the referee, Patrick, was like maybe 50 centimetres away at the time. <laughs> no, the referee was right next to me. I mean, it was me, the referee, and the player. I didn't think twice. I didn't even think about the referee at that time. You know, like, uh, uh, everybody was just boiling over. Everything was just... Uh, I mean, there were words that were being said, and everything was just hectic. But, so I turn around and just, uh, I just uh, headbutt him. I'm not proud of it, but uh, hit the moment. And then if you think about whatever happened the season before, uh, if you think about what was going on in the game, uh, it's not my proudest moment, to be fair. But um, well, what can I do? Like, just... Uh, to take a pause there and take stock. I mean, I mentioned earlier how you and I became friends around this time and uh, mainly because of our love of football. And to be sitting here talking to Patrick Sufo about why he headbutted a player. Um, why he headbutted current Aberdeen manager Derek McInnes. Exactly. Uh, is, is kind of what dreams are made of. So um, I just wanted to say that this is, is surreal and fantastic in lots of different ways, as is what Patrick says next about, about his general involvement that day. Yeah, so when we decided to do this, when we watched the, the tape back together... And when we realised that George Santos had already spoken about this and we were looking for other people to talk to, that one of the major questions, because there's no question about Santos's involvement, there's no question about the red card, and we got great stuff about the aftermath from Alan Biggs, which you'll hear. The main question about the on-pitch antics was, why is Patrick Suffo headbutting someone 30 seconds after he's come on? Well, Patrick's answered that now. Uh, Derek McInnes's hand 
in and around his face. He didn't like it. He didn't like the way the West Brom players were attacking George Santos, sticking up for a teammate. I think that goes some way to explaining it. Um, but we can't leave out this quote from Patrick because it really does sum up, uh, you know, just the ridiculousness of it all. Uh, I'm not even sure I touched the ball that day. My first action was on that many, I think. So both substitutions that Neil Warnock has made, uh, both players have been sent off within a couple of minutes of uh, of coming on. And arguably, you could almost say both were off-the-ball incidents, despite the fact that George Santos says was a foul. The ball, um, was... The ball was, was, was of no <laughs> impact on that moment at all. And given the reputation that, that Warnock obviously has as, as, as not necessarily being a shrinking violet, and also because there have been some murmurs and some talk about... Um, Foul play here um, from the dugout, so it was which we will very much get on to. Which we will. So it's important to ask uh, how the gaffer had, had, had reacted to that uh, that turn of events. Uh, we got sent off. I think he didn't say much because he wanted to take time and think and not react in the heat of the moment of the situation. He didn't really say much, but uh, I could tell he wasn't very happy. Just to recap, Sheffield United are now down to eight men. They're 2-0 down. There's still probably half an hour to go if you include added time. And the story doesn't end there. Yeah, no, it doesn't at all. (laughs) It gets more ridiculous. Um, Michael Brown, um, anyone who saw Michael Brown playing football knows that he didn't shirk a tackle. Um, He's on a yellow card. Shock. Um, (laughs) And uh, he is just flying into tackles left, right and centre. I say tackles... I think I mean fouls. He is really putting himself around the pitch. And I think it's fair to question, you've got to be very careful here, yeah. have to question whether he had any intention of staying on the pitch. But the referee's not biting. No, he's not having, he's having none of it. <laughs> so what do you do? It's a great game of cat and mouse. I here. mean, yeah, have got to be careful here again, because, uh, you know, Michael Brown's a, uh, a top man who I, who I think... Um, would refute any ideas that he was trying to do anything untoward. But from the outside looking in, the man has got a death wish here. And uh, when the referee doesn't play ball, what does he do? Well, he, he says, and this is what makes you know his energy in chasing and attempting to tackle the opposition uh, at this stage even more remarkable. Michael Brown's he's picked up a groin injury uh, early on in the game. And he has said to Neil Warnock at half-time that he would like to keep playing because they are losing, they're down to 10 men, and he feels like it's his duty. So uh, he's playing all the while, and as I say, really scurrying around with this very sore groin muscle. Uh, And just after, or not long after, uh, another foul from Brown, a free kick to West Brom, no further action taken. Uh, Michael Brown does go down injured. Uh, The physio comes on. The groin issue is substantial enough that that Michael Brown will come off as a sub. Now, we should also say that if you watch the highlights on YouTube that have been edited, uh, you know, sneakily, I think, or very cleverly, there's a moment where Keith Curl trots over to the touchline to have a word with Warnock. And it all seems very conspiratorial. And you can see why they've added that in. And I think that is probably a bit cheeky because... You know, there's plenty of, of accusations flying around that we're about to touch on. And, uh, and I think that the, the coverage probably fueled that. But Brown goes off injured. And a man we didn't mention in the, in the lineups, George, but uh, another name known to many, Rob Allathorne. He, not long after that, I think it's about five minutes on from Michael Brown, he's got a hammy, which 
again, there's one of those funny sort of quirks here. Um, if you look at a lot of the YouTube comments underneath, there are fans from teams that Rob Allathorne played for saying, you know, you might think that seems suspicious, but let me tell you, <laughs> Rob Allathorne was always injured. <laughs> it's you, not surprising at all. Do you know what this game really kind of lacks, sadly? It's the only thing I think that's disappointing about it. Literally nothing. I wish that either Michael Brown or Rob Allathorne had to go in goal and the substitute keeper had to come <laughs> out and play out, outfield just to try and keep the game going on longer, but that didn't happen. Um, but even so, after three sendings off, uh, Michael Brown doing very well not to get sent to be sent off once in his career, and then two injuries, suddenly Sheffield United are down to six men uh, and they are 3-0 down because in, in the ensuing madness, uh, prolific Scott Doby has helped himself to another. He so. has, hasn't he? He'll do that. The, the Vidi printer Messi, they used to call <laughs> Scott Doby. Um, yeah, I mean, you say it's a shame they didn't go in goal. There was no chance that sub-goalie Wilco Devote uh, was gonna, you know, was gonna give away anything that easily. It was his big moment. He's pretty. I mean, he's, he's gonna keep a clean sheet. Uh, no, he was not. <laughs> no. <laughs> for a second, I thought he came on after the goals. Incorrect. So, Sheffield United. Rob Allathorne leaves his, leaves the pitch. Uh, Sheffield United now have six players. So that's five outfield players and the goalkeeper on the pitch. The referee Eddie Wilsonholm. Uh, he knows the rules of football, even though they've never, this specific imp- rule has never been implemented before. Eddie knows the rules and Eddie takes the players off. This is the first ever English professional match to be abandoned due to lack of players. And it's fair to say that chaos ensues. Um, firstly, we've mentioned Eddie Wilsonholm. We'll be talking about him uh, a bit later on or coming up quite soon. Eddie Wilsonholm, uh, many of you will know, uh, was the referee's assessor a few weeks ago at Burnley against Newcastle, who fell ill before the game, uh, causing the match, which was a Monday night match, to be uh, delayed by half an hour uh, while Eddie was treated. Um, he is, as far as the last report that I could find, uh, was up talking, was um, feeling better a few hours later in the hospital. So we hope that he continues his recovery from that. Um, and it was, yeah, it's just, he, he wasn't, a professional referee for much longer after this. So, um, you know, it's interesting that he was at the heart of this and he's still uh, assessing referees to this day as a man who holds a refereeing record. It's unsurprisingly uh, an abandoned game, that the nature of it, the, the nature of the red cards, of the injuries, despite the fact this is pre-social media <laughs> age, this is quite clearly big news. And Alan Biggs, May not have been at the game, but he was uh, then, as he is now, Mr. Sheffield Sport. And uh, and it's fair to say that he was on the case, on the story, pretty quickly after the final whistle. Well, I, I sat transfixed in my car while I was driving back from a game in the northeast, which I'd covered for Radio 5 Live, just listening to the coverage on the radio from Bramall Lane, um, which ordinarily uh, wouldn't have merited probably more than a full-time match report, but was dominating uh, the phone-in show. I'm not sure if they called it 6.06 uh, back in 2002, but whatever, the post-match phone-in was totally dominated by it. Uh, I recall um, hearing, you know, the reaction of of an angry Gary Megson. I think Neil Warnock spoke, but it was still a very confused picture and it, it it was not only dramatic but it also was serious you know the potential ramifications of something the like of which um none of us i think had really heard a similar incident it, it just you know football has this habit of throwing up these 
dramas and which you think couldn't happen um and, and so dramatic was this that I, I noticed that the Battle of Bramall Lane, as it then became known, now has its own Wikipedia page, yeah. would you believe? It does. And now its own special, dedicated podcast. George, this leads us back to Messrs. Megson and Warnock, such key characters in this tale. Now, as Alan alludes to there, in the aftermath of the game, the immediate aftermath, in terms of the manager interviews, I think it's fair to say that there are, it, it, you know, there's a lot of heat of the moment stuff and there's quite a lot of accusations flying around from uh, from Megson's side of things. I think understandably he was obviously uh, a bit annoyed not to have got the three points for their promotion push. And this well, is what, at that stage they don't know, do they? They don't no. know, and we should have but said no, this but, before, but, but, they don't know what's going to happen to the game. But they know it's been abandoned. That's, I mean, And I think it's fair to say that maybe Megson didn't, assume they were going to be awarded the points, mm. judging by his quotes. Anyway, this is what he had to say. Well, he thinks there's nefariousness yeah. at work. Um, so he says, they were being told by certain people to go down. The authorities have to do the right thing, otherwise they reward cheating. And that was cheating. Sheffield United didn't cause that. One person did. I wonder who he's talking about there. The things going on, both on the pitch and on the line, were disgraceful and have no place in football. They should be severely punished by the FA. The next game we're 2-0 down. I'll make three subs and take eight off. <laughs> I think that's a really underrated part what, of this. I think it's that a, line, I'll make three subs it's and take eight it's, off. It's brilliant. And, and this is the first time uh, in you know my short career I can say this. Uh, we contacted Gary for comment uh, and he uh, he he I think understandably didn't really want to come on to, to the podcast sadly otherwise this would probably um, be bigger news than it's going to be but well, yeah uh, absolutely fair enough from his point of view this would be going over old news but um, from a Warnock point of view we got some good stuff as well uh, and this is another amazing quote because if you just listen to what he's saying everything becomes quite clear and the excitement with which we all decide that there's some sort of conspiracy and decide that Warnock's done this on purpose essentially um it in the face of this quote it seems a bit ridiculous warnock says i'm not going to put two subs on if i know they're going to get sent off within a minute wow (laughs) you can't i mean (laughs) you're absolutely right neil why would you put two subs on if you know they're going to get sent off within a minute How, how could you possibly know that one of your players who you're bringing on um has a metal plate in his face caused by one of the members of the opposition and very much holds a grudge. How could you know that his loyal um, and, and combative teammate, Patrick, uh, is entering the pitch uh, at a similar time in a very tense atmosphere? How could you possibly know that they were going to get sent off within a minute? Well, I think, you know, fair enough. My favourite quote from Warnock is, I wouldn't imagine Gary will be having a drink with me tonight, but not many managers do. Uh, which is just wonderful. Wonderful Warnock. And I mean, even last season, we saw him have quite good beef with uh, Nuno, didn't we, in the Championship? So he's an absolute legend when it comes to that sort of stuff. But one of the key questions here is, did Neil Warnock and or his staff and or his players do this on purpose? Did they take players off the pitch in order to get the game abandoned because they thought they might be able to get the game replayed? And I think cutting through all the noise... Patrick Sifo sums it up fairly well. Uh, it's, a, it's in March. They've played a lot of games. There's not many games to go. And Sheffield United don't really have much to play for. No, I don't, I don't really think so. Josh came in because our 
few chances to score or uh, could be on a free kick or, or on a set play. And you know how to have big judges, so he can always put the head there and things like that. I think it was more for that than anything else. No, he, he, he didn't send him out there to, to smash anyone. In our mind, it was a game that we lost already. Okay. So we, we didn't do anything to for the game to be replayed or anything now. We didn't do we didn't go about it that way. Obviously it's a game where after ten minutes is already ten players and then uh, you have to play against ten players with one game down. Everybody is very tired. Everybody is very everybody has given more than they could have in a normal game. So at that time player was just tired. I don't think it was intentional to stop the game to have a chance to replay the game or something like that. No, it wasn't like that. These are only rumors. It's worth pointing out here as well that the two guys who, who went off injured, uh, Michael Brown didn't play again uh, for the rest of the season. Robert Ullathorne did miss four games through injury. So that seems to stack up with what Patrick's saying there. Um, one man, as we've, as we've you know already heard, who was on the case for this was Alan Biggs. And he had a bit of an ace up his sleeve when it came to finding out what was going on. Because obviously, given what happened in the game, there was a lot of talk, a lot of speculation. And there was one man who he went to to try and clear that up. That's all... Um, freelance journalists do when they see a few uh, pound coins appear on the <laughs> periphery <laughs> they get stuck in and they start ringing around their contacts and very fortunately I was well placed for contacts on this particular story but where I was especially lucky um, was that I had a telephone number for the referee Eddie Wollstonehome I think I'd spoken to on a fleeting basis, you know, a year or two earlier, but I, I had to have his telephone number. So the big talking point and debate and the accusation afterwards was this suggestion that Neil Warnock, who, let's say, as a qualified referee himself, and that's something that he'll never cease to remind you of, uh, he certainly knows the laws of the game. The accusation being that he had contrived with his team three goals to nil down to get this match postponed by what the interpretation would be nothing short of skullduggery. You know, having had three players sent off and others allegedly injured. And that really was, um, you know, taking aside the fact that, you know, if you look again, you know, a couple of the offences are horrendous. You know, the, the red cards that were received by Sheffield United players. What made it extraordinary was this suggestion that a manager had deliberately uh, got a game abandoned, um, as it was. So, for me, there was only one person who could answer that when it came to any possible follow-up action from the FA, and that was the referee. And he went so far as to clear and Neil Warnock of any suggestion that, that, that this accusation would be in his report. And he said to me words to the effect of, I'm not aware of any action by the Sheffield United manager or anybody on the Sheffield United bench to get this game deliberately called off. And he confirmed that that would not be in his match report. It would just be the details of the sendings off and the injuries uh, and the fact that he'd abandoned it. He was actually quite calm and, and, and certainly categoric on on that particular point. And I think that was the the crucial one. You know, was there some, you know, dirty tricks at play here? Um, of course, it, you know, it would be difficult for a referee to detect or to prove that anyway, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, but I, I think he was going on 
you know, the words that were flying around from the benches and, and what he heard and what he saw, and he didn't see fit to uh, to include that. And, and, and uh, of course, that was important. And I think had he not made that clear at the outset, you know, the headlines would have carried on with that theme for several days. You know, people would have pursued that angle. Um, and, and that would have been more damaging probably for football. Uh, it wasn't at least dragged through that. It was quite a dramatic Saturday night because uh, having established that from the referee, I then had a, a, a long conversation with uh, Derek Dooley, who was Sheffield United's managing director, a staunch ally of uh, Neil Warnock. And I talked to Derek, you know, his reaction of what had happened. He was shaken, I've got to say. Um, and relayed to him um, what the referee had said. And he was pleased to hear that. And I'd no sooner put the phone down, I think a few minutes after that, than I had a, an incoming call from Neil Warnock himself, who you know I, I knew very well and known for, for, for many years, but hadn't involved in the story at that stage. Just saying, hey, you know, Derek. Derek's just told me that referees, referees not reporting. You know this accusation. So um, I said, "Yeah, yeah, you told you correctly." He said, "I, I wanted to hear it for myself." He said, I, "I just needed to hear that for myself." Now he was relieved, but delighted that that you know that part of it wasn't going any further. Some people will say, even at this distance, that his relief was telling. Um, that in some way he had contrive this scenario uh, you know I wasn't there I've no idea you know if Neil says that he didn't I mean what had he got to gain from it um, heat of the moment you know he knows the laws of the game is he going to do that but actually he also knows the way football works well enough to know that no manager was ever ever going to get away with that and I have heard subsequently backstage that uh, that Warnock really was in a touch-and-go situation uh, for his job following that um, with Kevin McCabe, the long-time uh, Sheffield United chairman, who took a very uh, dim view of, of what happened. And the way it's been put to me um, subsequently is that Neil Warnock would have been sacked um, that night, but for one thing, and that one thing that, 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 that I've heard, and it's never been substantiated on the record, is that the media, and I think in particular Sky's um, denunciation of all things Sheffield United, um, was so, so great. The criticism was so fierce of the whole club, you know, ju not just this one game and, and, and this one scenario, uh, that Kevin McCabe drew back. Uh, and decided he wasn't going to play into the hands of the FA. He was very indignant um, about what he saw as the good name of, of the club being dragged through the mud like that. And, and he drew back. And Neil Warnock carried on. And as history shows, he, he got the club um, into the Premier League a, a, a few years later. But it was very emotive. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I'd known Gary Megson as as well and still do um, you, you know you can understand the way he must have viewed that you know any manager who thinks a 3-0 lead is going to go to waste when all that's going to go on he's going to be angry aren't they so at a time where there's a lot of accusation there's a lot of anger um, Alan and his intrepid reporting and talking to the referee actually goes a long way to 
quashing uh, what is a very, very big story threatening to get out of hand. And I think for the best, really, because as much fun as it is, um, I personally, I don't know about you, George, I, I don't believe that the conspiracies that go all the way um, really stack up. Because I, as, I've, as I've mentioned at the top of the show, I, I truly believe this was just the perfect storm, the perfect situation, the perfect atmosphere. It was like it was concocted in a lab for this to happen. But happily for us, and the reason why we've enjoyed doing this podcast, is that there are still some cracking rumours that have come out off the back of it. Yeah, on the... Uh on a retrospective on the official West Brom uh, website this so uh, maybe a little bit more clout to it than, than some other things uh, legend has it that Santos's 15 minutes of fame came to an end with him trying to force his way into the Albion dressing room Johnson grabbing a crutch to defend himself but such scurrilous accus- accusations are nonsense uh, if, if such nonsense you'd wonder why they report on them uh, in the Birmingham Mail as well a bit rude to call a former player to say 15 minutes of fame Someone who played for your club. In, in Only pro- eight times, yeah. but still. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree I more. can see why he, they're not George Santos's biggest fans. Yeah. But yeah, well, I even think, so. I think it ended fairly acrimoniously as well, which is you know, maybe one for another time. But in, in the Birmingham Mail, um, Derek Dooley, ex-Sheffield Wednesday player and close friend of the Megson family, who was chairman of the Blades, those close to him claim the relationship between the two families was never the same again. Oh, I hope that's not true. I really do. I hope that... The Dooleys and the Megsons are still going, you know, going out for lunch, going out for dinner, because that would be that would be a sad end to what was uh, a pretty chaotic day. Um, my favourite one, I think, was uh, something I read on the Birmingham Mail as well, which was that one reporter, not Alan Biggs, clearly, who did very well out of this, uh, one reporter overcome with stress due to the overwhelming chaos, was physically unable to file his post-match copy. Uh, now that. You know, if I know on the whistle, match report writing journos, it's going to take something pretty special. So it's uh, it's a remarkable story. It's an absolutely remarkable story. There's just a couple more things to clear up in terms of what actually happened. The match was not replayed. Of course, it wasn't. And we know from what Alan has told us that and from what Patrick's told us as well, that actually that was never going to happen. That was never the motivation of Sheffield United. And frankly, I think everyone despite the anger in the immediate aftermath, was probably quite keen to put this game uh, behind them. But of course, there were sanctions and Sheffield United were fined £10,000. Patrick Suffer was fined £3,000 plus a six-game ban, three for the dismissal, three for violent conduct. Keith Kerr fined 500 quid and a two-match ban. I think that's just for his part in the melee, not that bad defending um, for the early red card, but it's not confirmed. Uh, George Santos, six-match ban, uh, and Neil Warnock, 300 quid fine for improper conduct towards the fourth official. So despite everything that's happened, Warnock's great slap on the wrist is a couple of hundred quid fine for improper conduct towards the fourth official. Now, I don't think I'm going too far when I say I'm sure he's had that a few times before. So that won't have, probably won't have hurt that much. I mean, George, in terms of... Um, of, of George Santos and Patrick Sufo, as well as the fine, they were um, sort of made an example of uh, by Sheffield United. And they were basically told that they were transfer listed, that they'd never play for the club again after their 45-second uh, dismissals, <laughs> double dismissal. Um, now, George Santos has said on that uh, Kings of Anglia podcast that he felt a little bit like, and you can see why, slightly scapegoated for the whole affair. 
Um, and when we put the same question to Patrick Sufo, uh, sort of pleasingly, uh, it wasn't quite the same story for him, and, and for Patrick at least, the, the transfer listing, the banning, it didn't really have uh, too much of an impact in what was quite an important year for him. Honestly, in my case, personally, because remember, it was a World Cup year. In my case, uh, I knew I was going to be suspended. I didn't know how long. And I had the World Cup coming. And I didn't, I didn't want to miss that World Cup for nothing. So when I got suspended, I had to find a way to play football again before the World Cup. And luckily, uh, in Spain at that time, uh, when a team has many players injured, they are allowed to take a player. That's how I ended up in Numancia in Spain. Uh, and when did when did you join Numancia? How long after the uh, this game? Uh, that was supposed to maybe two weeks, two or three weeks after that. Okay, so it wasn't like because because that summer after we had a World Cup in Japan with Cameroon. So it all ended okay for Patrick. He, was, uh, he went to Numancia uh, on loan. He, he played well enough, apparently, to get into the Cameroon squad for the World Cup. He was out there in Japan and South Korea, um, although maybe quite aptly it did end in a, in a red card off the bench against Germany in their final group game. So very on brand for Patrick, that one. Maybe our next podcast could be all about Patrick Sufo's World Cup uh, in 2002. Yeah, George Santos, for his part, I mean, he's he very much... Played for another six, seven years, despite that metal plate um, causing him some yip, I imagine, uh, as it was implanted in his face. Uh, he went on to Grimsby, Ipswich, 74 games for QPR, Brighton, a three-game loan spell at Oxford United, Chesterfield, Alfreton, Farsley Celtic, and finished at Fleetwood. Uh, four caps for Cape Verde as well, George Santos. And he has been, since his retirement, working as a scout for Manchester City, for Mallorca, and we are led to believe currently for Olympique Marseille. So again, despite all the sadness, all the anger, all the disappointment of the immediate aftermath, um, George Santos has gone on to do very, very well. As for West Brom, well, you might remember at the beginning of the podcast, I told you that on the day of this game, the, 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 was it the 16th of March, don't forget, there's only eight games to go, and they're 11 points behind... Wolves at this stage. They're looking like a playoff team rather than an automatic promotion team. Now, was it something to do with what happened on this day or were they always set for a good run? I don't know. But they then go and play four games in 11 days after this and they win every single game out of those four. Four in a row. Andy Johnson misses all four of those games, but he's back for the last two games. Now, by that point, on Easter Monday, they are level with Wolves who were 11 points ahead of them just three and a half weeks before. And on Easter Monday, they then overtake Wolves. Uh, no, sorry, the following weekend, they overtake Wolves. And they win their last two games with Andy Johnson back in the side, leg very much intact. Uh, West Brom go up automatically behind Man City. Absolute joy and success for Gary Megson and his team. And as we said, uh, for a, um, a group of people on both sides, quite keen to put this one behind them, I think. Uh, it was a fantastic end to the story for West Brom. Almost 17 years later, these teams have not played a huge amount in the interim. I think this will be their first game for about seven years or so. And, um, well, we're led to believe from what the commentator says on the highlights that historically this is a game that has a lot of drama. The Battle of Bramall Lane certainly um, number one on the list. But, George, on Friday night they go head-to-head. -head. Uh, it's, it's at Bramall Lane. 
And these are two teams vying for promotion on paper as a football match without quite as much drama attached to it. I mean, it's still a, an absolutely scintillating prospect. Yeah, it's, it's still a, a huge game between two teams with promotion aspirations, despite what Sheffield United manager um, may say about that. Worth pointing out as well that Chris Wilder is a Sheffield United fan. Um, his uh, playing days were over um, when this game took place. So it's not beyond, beyond the realms of possibility that he'd have been there on the day. <laughs> that might be speculation, but I'm going to call it here that, uh, that if he was available, he'd have been there. Um, yeah, it's, it's a huge game for both teams. And um, Black Type, our sponsors, uh, priced up the game early for you. Sheffield United are, are, are 13 to 10 favourites. The draw is 5 to 2, and West Brom are 2 to 1. I think that shows you just how close this one's going to be. Will it live up to that game uh, back in 2002? I'm not sure. The game after, when the next face each other the next season, oh no, sorry, a couple of seasons later, when West Brom obviously came back down as, as they did back in that day, um, finished with seven yellow cards. So not quite as heated, but still pretty Larry and the guys at Black Type have also given us a very enhanced offer as well if you want to back uh, this to be another ill-tempered affair yeah so on blacktype.bet which if you sign up with the offer code NTT20 you'll get a £10 free bet and they're offering a special for this game based around what we've been talking about today for either side to receive a red card is 8-1 to one for the game on Friday night for both teams to receive a red card that is priced up at 66-1 to one. now generally looking at the game tonight for example on Monday night in the Premier League um, you're looking at 7-2 to two or 4-1 to one really for a red card to be shown so uh, boosted odds for a red card boosted odds for a, a tasty game between these two teams Sheffield United excellent at home West Brom so so good going forward which West Brom will we see um, remains to be seen but we hope that um, that you'll be listening to the betting show on Thursday sponsored by Black Tight where we'll be going through the whole card the whole fixture list across the EFL on the weekend picking out some selections for you guys to look into in more detail some selections that we fancy um, we hope you've enjoyed this this as we said at the start is very much a, a new thing for us um, something we've not tried before and, and hopefully it has been entertaining, informative, um, fun and we, we're, we're thrilled to have got guests of the calibre uh, of Alan Biggs and Patrick Sufo. They have made the story a hundred times better with their insight, with their memories and I think it's only fair that they lead us out because for both of these guys this is a game that they will never ever forget. I mean when I look back in my career I look at I highlight the moment uh, the Bramley battle is all up there with my World Cup, with my Olympics and all that. These are the moments to remember. When I speak about football, talking about my career, I cannot uh, speak about my career once without speaking about this uh, this moment. Go, uh, going back, being in the same situation uh, on the pitch, I'm not sure if I would have reacted to any different. You, you wonder what to say and what to do, because you've never seen it before. We've had late goals and penalties and saves and you know sendings off and everything like that but this battle of Bramall Lane goes into that file of uh, tales of the unexpected <laughs>